should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook and Twitter, and on our YouTube channel. I'm Melissa Kane, political and legal analyst for CBS News San Francisco and your moderator for today's program. Our guest tonight is hilarious no matter what subject he tackles, and we're so excited to have him join us. I could tell you that PJ O'Rourke is a best-selling author and incomparable political satirist who has, whose work has spanned more than three decades. I could also tell you that he's the most quoted living man in the Penguin Dictionary of Modern Humorous Quotations. <laughs> but to really examine his greatness, I turned to the internet. And, and not just any internet, I examined the reviews on Amazon for his most recent book, an anthology of his work called Thrown Under the omnibus, the omnibus. In those Amazon reviews, there was one that was quite negative, and I will read it to you now. <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, not included in this book are the more recent pieces he has written for Atlantic Monthly, The Weekly Standard, The Daily Beast, et al., including a recent article slash review about noisy conservative Ann Coulter, who he describes as a butt trumpet. Yeah. <laughs> So we know two things. First, you might want to add the butt trumpet thing to your next book. And second, even in the vapid hellscape that is the internet comment section, uh, the worst that could be said is that his readers want more. And that is just one more reason why we are so thrilled to welcome PJ O'Rourke. I was going to uh, I was going to read from my new book, but my new book is in, in fact it's it's an anthology. It's a, it's full of material from my 
my previous books, and, and I have read them already. Uh, so, and I'm also, I thought to myself, what writer, what writer can resist this 2016 presidential campaign? <laughs> um, I'm full of righteous indignation about this campaign. Um, you see, I am a political humorist, and I cannot be funnier than this campaign. <laughs> I am a political satirist, and this campaign has been fully self-satirizing. Uh, and I am a political commentator, and I can't get a word in edgewise with Donald Trump around. So I, I'm full of righteous uh, indignation, and I'm also unemployed. Um, who are these jacklegs, these highbinders, these wire pullers, mountebanks, swellheads, bunkum spigots, boodle artists, four flushers, animated spittoons, offering themselves as worthy for America's highest office? I mean, do they take us voters for fools? Well, yes, they do. <laughs> Obviously, they do. But I mean, are they also deluded? Are they also insane? Are they receiving radio broadcasts on their teeth fillings <laughs> saying that they would make a good president? Um, Clinton, Carson, Sanders, Rubio, Bush, Fiorina, Cruz, Kasich, Huckabee, Christie, Santorum, O'Malley, Graham, Pataki, and Trump. That is not a list of presidential candidates. That, that is the worst law firm in the world. <laughs> that is a law firm that couldn't get Caitlyn Jenner off on a charge of Bruce Jenner identity theft. I mean, uh, has, the, has the office of the presidency, has it diminished in stature until, until it attracts only the leprechauns of, of public life? Uh, or, or have our have our politicians have they shrunk until they, till none of them can pass the carnival test? You must be taller than the clown to, to run for president. I mean, you know, there is uh, at this point still kind of an outside chance that the two candidates for president will be Clinton and Bush. I tremble for my country if that's the case. I mean, members of the electorate will go into the ballot booth. They will see those two names. They will think to themselves, as I often think to myself, gosh, I'm getting forgetful. I did this already. <laughs> and they'll leave without marking the ballot. I mean, voter, voter turnout will be 6%, you know. Um, Yes, yes, the, uh, 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 the shuttle from the old age home will send a, a few senile Republicans to the polls. A, a Democratic National Committee bus will collect some derelicts from Skid Row. And, and we will have the first president of the United States elected by a franchise limited to sufferers from Alzheimer's disease and drunken bums. <laughs> so who have we got running for president? Well, there is Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, um, she retains her, her iron grip on second place uh, in the race for the uh, nomination because whoever is in first place is so far out ahead, we don't know who it is. You know? um, uh, and I, I have some evidence to back up that statement. I, if you'll recall, pretty much at this stage in the 2008 election cycle, um, Barack Hussein Obama, uh, he was about as likely to be nominated for president uh, as some small-time community organizing junior senator from Illawarra ever, you know, uh, uh, with a name like somebody who had tried to sabotage an airplane with an underpants bomb, you know I mean? <laughs> 
Uh, and speaking of airplanes, Hillary carries more baggage than the Boeing that she used as Secretary of State, visiting every country that later blew up in her face uh, in her quest to fulfill the mission of the United States uh, Secretary of State, which is to accumulate frequent flyer mileage. <laughs> Um, on the upside, on the upside, Hillary is familiar with the White House. She knows where the extra toilet paper is stored. She, she knows where the spare key to the nuke attack briefcase thing is hidden. hidden. It's, uh, it's on the Truman balcony, second pillar from the left. Um, now, failing Hillary, we had Joe Biden. Um, uh, uh, Joe. Joe was the Democratic Party establishment's Plan B, but then the, the, the B part of Plan B, the Biden part, um, decided that this was a lousy plan. Uh, and my theory about why Joe Biden is not running for president is that Joe Googled himself. <laughs> because if you enter Joe Biden quotes into any search engine, this is what you will find. And I checked these quotes. I, I did my due diligence on this. Uh, Joe on, on, on Barack Obama. This was in 2008 during, a, uh, during that campaign. Joe said, you got the first mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and clean and a nice-looking guy. Great, Joe. Um, this is Joe on diversity. Uh, um, he said, in Delaware, the largest growth of population is Indian Americans moving from India. You cannot go into a 7-Eleven or a Dunkin's Donuts without a slight Indian accent. And I'm going, Joe, anybody else you'd like to offend? <laughs> well, how about the disabled? Uh, uh, <laughs> Vice President, uh, he was speaking at a political fundraiser in Missouri, and he said, I'm told Chuck Graham, state senators here, stand up, Chuck, let him see you. Missouri State Senator Chuck Graham is paraplegic. <laughs> so I think we see uh, why Joe is not running for president. Uh, there was some talk that he would, uh, uh, might team up with Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren as his, his VP candidate. And, and I'm not sure uh, if Warren is, is, is not still in the picture, uh, maybe part of, uh, Maybe she'll be part of a, a girls gone wild Democratic presidential <laughs> ticket. Um, Warren has Native American ancestry. How? As you may well ask. Uh, but uh, it is a fundraising plus if she gets her own casino. Um, <laughs> Warren is an expert on bankruptcy law, giving her a vision for our nation's future. Um, <laughs> And Warren turned left, uh, the only direction that the GPS units uh, give in the hybrid cars that vegan aromatherapist Democratic primary voters drive. <laughs> uh, then there's the, uh, the candidate who, for a moment, uh, um, seemed like the candidate who was so far of Hillary, uh, in front of Hillary that we didn't know who it was. Unfortunately, who it turned out to be is the screwy, kablooey commander of the Viet Cong, Bernie Sanders. Um, Bernie, Bernie's a socialist, actually says so himself. Um, uh, a socialist, uh, he will take your flat screen TV and give it to a family of pill addicts in the backwoods of Vermont. Um, Bernie says he wants to make America more like Europe. Great idea. 
great idea because Europe has had a swell track record for a hundred years, you know. Ever since Archduke Ferdinand's car got a flat in Sarajevo in 1914, things have been just swinging in Europe, you know. Make America more like Europe. Where do you even go to get all the Nazis and the commies and the 90 million dead people that it would take to make America more like Europe, you know. Then there are the Republicans, uh, Marco Rubio, great kid. I love children. Uh, you know, all the cute things they do, you know, cute things they say, the way Marco blows through his GOP-issued campaign credit card allowance, the way my 11-year-old son Buster does. Um, but Marco has got to stop it with the abortion stuff. You just, you can't, you, you gotta, it, stop. Marco, stop with it. You know, I, 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 you know, I feel like I want to take him aside, put my arm around his shoulders, and say, Marco, let me tell you how a real Republican approaches the abortion question. Don't make it legal. Don't make it illegal. Make it retroactive. <laughs> Kid gets to be 25, he's still a bum whack. <laughs> it's a position everyone can support. You know? Jeb Bush, he had everything. He had everything. He's young for a Republican. Uh, <laughs> Phi Beta Kappa, successful businessman. Two-term governor of Florida where balloting incompetence and corruption are vital to the GOP. <laughs> Plus, Jeb, he was like rolling like a dirty dog in campaign contributions, you know. And then somehow it all went wrong, you know. Now, there's still hope there. I, mean, I understand Jeb will legally change his name to George Herbert Walker Bush. Everybody likes him. <laughs> and he only served one term, so he is constitutionally eligible to run again. Carly Fiorina. <clears throat> Maybe she can run America the way she ran Hewlett Packard. You know? Great. I mean, the way she ran Hewlett Packard was fabulous if you shorted the stock. Um, Hewlett Packard's stock price fell more than 60% while Carly was CEO. I mean, I may forgive Carly, but my Keogh plan will never forgive Carly, you know? Ben Carson, nothing to be said against him. I understand he spoke here, as a matter of fact. Nothing to be said against Ben Carson, unless you're one of those persnickety fact-checking types that all real, all real journalists hate, you know? Um, Dr. Carson is a soft-spoken gentleman. He rose from a background of social adversity and economic deprivation that makes, you know, President Obama look like the lost Bush brother. Uh, we'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Carson went to Yale. Uh, he went to the University of Michigan 
uh, medical school. He completed his residency at Johns Hopkins, becoming the, the hospital's youngest ever director of pediatric neurosurgery at age 33 in 1984. Now, just to put a little perspective on that, 1984, 1984, Donald Trump was sending out invitations to his first bankruptcy. You know, uh, Jeb Bush was chairing meetings of the Dade County Republican Party in a phone booth. Uh, uh, Carly Fiorina was in the break room uh, at AT&T making coffee for the executives, and Marco Rubio was in eighth grade. <laughs> Dr. Garson's a genius. He's the, the first surgeon to successfully separate Siamese twins, co-joined at the head, and this is why I am asking Dr. Ben Carson to please quit running for president. Please just quit running for president. Get back to work. Get back to work, damn it, we need you, we need you. I mean, uh, 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 George W. and Jeb's heads might get co-joined, you know what I mean? <laughs> True, they're not twins, but the Bush family is inbred and freakish things can result from, from, from inbreeding. Or, Dr. Carson could be removing Donald Trump's ruptured silicone brain implant that is endangering Republicans everywhere, you know? Yeah. I just, I just want to say to Dr. Carson, your mom, your mom, your poor hardworking mom wanted, wanted you to be a doctor, you know. Many of us, many of us have sons and daughters who will not get into medical school, you know, or do anything else of value to society, as far as I can tell so far. Uh, <laughs> true, they're still teens, but, you know, <laughs> it doesn't look good. These are the kids we send into politics, right? You know, I mean, you know, these are the kids where we tell them, you know, honey, honey, um, you're, um, you're special, uh, and, uh, and we love you very much, just the way you are, and it's okay that you're in your fourth year of ninth grade, and uh, why don't you run for office, you know? Um, and let's not forget about Rand Paul, although everybody else seems to have done so. Um, Rand, Rand believes the uh, federal government should obey the rule, mind your own business, and keep your hands to yourself. Uh, I call it the Bill and Hillary Clinton principle. Um, Hillary, mind your own business. Bill, keep your hands to yourself. You know? <laughs> Unfortunately, Rand's just not getting a Republican nomination, and this is because Rand Paul is a Republican, yes, but he is also a libertarian. And, and libertarianism, it appeals to, 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 to those who, who consider themselves fiscal conservatives and social liberals. Uh, now, fiscal conservative, social liberal, that means they want to uh, get high and have sex while saving money. <laughs> and who does not? <laughs> but, but how are you going to get any Republicans to admit that in public? <laughs> you know, so, so he's out. You know. um, somebody pointed out to me that I've been forgetting Ted Cruz in this list. I have certainly been trying to. You know, uh, I don't... I don't think we really know, need to go into Ted Cruz, but I will tell you this one thing about Ted Cruz is never ever look at Ted Cruz and think Bill Murray as the sleazy lounge singer. <laughs> you will never get that image out of your head. <laughs> it looks exactly like, it looks exactly like Bill Murray as the sleazy lounge singer. Now also among the uh, uh, 2000 uh, uh, presidential candidates we have and have had, um, what I, I call the walking dead, the walking dead. In fact, this came up at Halloween because the kids were, you know, thinking about going out for Halloween. And I'm going, hey, you know, are you looking for a swell zombie costume? 
Look no further than your nearest political poll. I mean, you know, talk about rotting corpses frightfully lurching around when they should be six feet under. I mean, you know, it was, it was Bobby Jindal was still in the race at that point. We got Rick Santorum, John Kasich, Martin O'Malley, Lindsey Graham, Jim Webb, George Pataki, all polling below the plus or minus margin of undead error. You know, I mean, political zombies. You know, they're they're soulless. Or politicians, uh, and they want to eat your brains because they obviously don't have any of their own, or they would have been out of the race months before. You know, uh, costumes are, were easy to make. Uh, you just get one of Dad's dress shirts, rumple artfully, you know, roll up the sleeves, loosen the necktie to look like a regular guy, and then smear yourself with political gore. Uh, the Al Gore kind will do. Um, and I, and I was telling the kids, bonus, you know, you know, as a political zombie, you can trick or treat at the uh, at the houses in, in, in our neighborhood and at town hall meetings and VFW posts and volunteer firemen spaghetti dinners and, and evangelical churches. Downside, you, you you might get spaghetti, a Bible, or two delegates to the Republican National Convention instead of candy. Um, why weren't these candidates? buried at the ballot crossroads with a yard sign driven through their hearts, you know, I just don't know. And I was thinking about it a little bit. Bobby Jindal, I decided Bobby Jindal was kind of kept in the race, kept in the race by the Republican establishment in order to show how Republicans, unlike Joe Biden, how Republicans just love diversity. Republicans love diversity. As long as you're prosperous and don't talk funny and you dress like a Republican the way Ben Carson does. Um, Meanwhile, you know, the GOP establishment is also saying, you know, sort of sub rosa, they're saying, uh, hey, Bobby, Ben, by the way, it's okay if you have some cousins ma managing flea bag motels or selling crack, you know, but you don't have to bring them to the country club, okay? Um, now, Rick Santorum, interesting case. Rick Santorum is the Republican voice of social conservatism. He's against abortion, he's against illegal immigrants, he's against gay marriage, he's in favor of church, and so are all Republicans until our kid knocks up the 15-year-old next door, uh, or the yard chores need doing, or offending the LBGT community means letting Louie from Home Depot be our interior decorator, um, or until Christ conflicts with tea time. You know? So he's not happening. John Kasich, okay, John Kasich actually seriously mystifies me. Yeah, he's not so much of a joke. He actually seriously mystifies me as a Republican uh, and as a, as a reporter. Uh, Kasich is very popular, very popular and very conservative governor of Ohio, a state that is as purple as Barney the dinosaur, you know? Barney's friends are big and small. They come from lots of places, and they all hate each other, you know? They all hate each other. They don't hate John. And, you know, Ohio is like a great microcosm of America. It's got all the conflicts that are going on in America now. It's got labor versus management. It's got, it, it, it's got stagnated wages versus the 1%. You know, it's got, it, it's got tea partiers versus, versus immigrants. It's got blacks versus white. You name the conflict. Ohio has got the conflict. And Kasich has handled this. Uh, he beat an incumbent Democrat who was not an unpopular guy, beat him by a narrow margin, went, then went on to be reelected by a landslide. Before he was governor of Ohio, Kasich, he served nine terms in Congress. And he served nine terms in Congress, you know, to put it bluntly, shoveling important shit. You know, 18 years. He spent 18 years on the House Armed Services Committee. He spent six years as chairman of the House Budget Committee. He knows about stuff. You know, <clears throat> 
And I look at him and I go, well, no wonder he's polling at 4% because the GOP is in no damn mood for competent, experienced politicians <laughs> with a broad popular appeal. No, you know. John Kasich is, as far as I can tell, John Kasich is a two-word Republican suicide note. You know? Martin O'Malley is another one that's like utter, utterly mystifies me. O'Malley's the ex-governor on nowhere. Nowhere, because if you take the Washington suburbs away, Maryland, Maryland's like Appalachia in the west. It's impoverished uh, Delmarva Peninsula fishing villages in the east, plus Baltimore, you know, Afghanistan on the Patapsco, you know. <laughs> Baltimore is grossly impoverished. It has a homicide rate that is 26% higher than Detroit's, <clears throat> and ABC News has called uh, uh, Baltimore the heroin capital of the United States. And O'Malley was its mayor. <laughs> I, I, the only thing I can figure is that O'Malley lost a game of truth or dare, you know, and that, and that he is running for president uh, uh, rather than answer the question of how bad do the Ravens suck this year. You know? <laughs> and South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, too hawkish to appeal to the general electorate, not crazy enough to appeal to Republican primary voters. Uh, maybe he thinks he can gain support from progressives, you know, a, a group that is to judge by Bernie Sanders rallies, uh, currently larger and sillier than usual. Uh, Lindsay's strategy is to have a girl's name. Uh, he's tricking progressives into thinking they're voting for America's first transgender president. <laughs> and on it goes, and on it goes. So my response to this, <clears throat> I'm supporting Donald Trump. I'm supporting Donald Trump. <laughs> And I'm supporting Trump because of something that the great political satirist H.L. Mencken said. Mencken said, democracy is the theory that the common people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, America's, <clears throat> uh, 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 he, he, he becomes president. Trump's, his, his uh, chief domestic policy goal, excuse me, I got a little, <clears throat> Remnants of a colder. Trump's chief domestic policy is gonna—it's gonna be to be on TV. You know, I mean, and that's one reason he's so strong in the polls. Americans can identify with Trump because the chief goal of everyone in America is to be on TV. You know? uh, and as when he's president, Trump Trump will get to be on TV all the time, 24/7, much as he wants. You know. But this might not be all bad, because just spraying his hair during commercial breaks, this is going to keep Trump so busy that he will be unable to push other bird-brained domestic policy goals the way certain other presidents have done. Uh, and, and Trump can yell, you're fired, all he likes. It's going to make for a healthy uh, turnover in Trump cabinet appointees, such as, such as Ivanka and Dennis Rodman and Larry King and Vince McMahon. Um, plus, Trump understands the American economy. He will grow America's economy the way he grew his own economy with bad debt, bad debt, bad debt, and more bad debt. Um, you know, America's average household debt, average household debt in America, it's now more than $225,000. Now, Trump, Trump has restructured, restructured $3.5 billion of his business debt and $900 million of his personal debt. Restructured being the Trump way of saying that he didn't pay it, you know? And we Americans know a leader when we see one. You know? <laughs> then imagine Trump's foreign policy. Here's a guy 
who's under the illusion, you know, you've probably read about this in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, he's under the illusion he's about 10 times richer than he actually is. Uh, and not only that, but he believes, he believes Obama was born in Karjakistan to the Queen of Sheba, you know? <laughs> and he thinks childhood vaccination caused the movie Rain Man, you know? I mean, so Russia and China and Iran and ISIS and the Taliban and Hamas, they're going to be paralyzed with fear because who knows what this lunatic is going to do, you know? Well, what he'll do is he'll build hundreds of Trump casinos, <clears throat> Trump hotels, and Trump resorts in Moscow, Beijing, Tehran, Raqqa, Kandahar, and the Gaza Strip, and then they will all go bankrupt uh, the way the Trump Taj Mahal, Trump Plaza Hotel, and Trump Entertainment Resorts did, you know? And this is Trump is going to leave Russia trying to palm off eastern Ukraine on angry bondholders and China <laughs> auctioning distressed property in the Spratly Islands. And, and hell, this might work. <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> but <clears throat> anyway, that's all I know. Um, but um, if people have some questions, Melissa, if you have some questions, I will make up some other stuff. Okay? <laughs> back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years and uh, over the past couple of months I just opened up my club Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. 
So you're endorsing Trump. Is that what I'm? Is that what I heard? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I am. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. I mean, this is like ceasing to be a joke. And I, don't you feel a little guilt as part of the news media that we like gave this guy attention because he was so funny and stupid acting? The other day, Seth Meyers said that the Trump candidacy has been like being on a tilt-a-whirl. Right? At first, you're like, "Yay, we!" And then after a while, you kind of get sick of yourself. Stop it! Stop <laughs> spinning! It I'm starting to get sick. It stops being funny after a bit. So, yeah, it right, was right, very good. And thought, yeah. Oh yeah, that makes perfect yeah, sense. I'm going to steal that analogy. Um, so, I guess my first question. So I was so excited to hear you had a new book out. But but my first question has to be: um, Is everything okay? Because is everything okay? Is everything okay? Between us, you know, we're yeah. all family here. Um, this is a, a, a book, a compendium of essays that you've written over the last, you know, thirty some odd years. Um, forty more. Uh, t- tell 40 me, some. tell me, this is uh, not a like pre-retirement thing. You're going to keep writing. No, and- I've got kids who are. Uh, my daughter turns eighteen on uh, Friday tomorrow, and um, uh, she's got college narrowed down to. She's applying to four hundred colleges. Uh, <laughs> 200 that she can't get into, 200 I can't afford, you know. <laughs> and I got two more coming behind her, so no, this is not, okay, good. This is not a farewell. This is not a farewell. No. Good to know. And how did you go about picking the stories that, that you were going to include here? Well, and did you read anything I, from back in like the 80s and go, I can't believe I wrote, I wrote that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You find those things in there, especially when I was at the National Lampoon, you know, as a kid at the National Lampoon. I wrote some stuff that, wow, you know, I would still go to jail for today. <laughs> Just, you know. Uh, you know, it's, it's like trigger. There isn't a trigger big enough for the trigger warning that some of that stuff would. would uh, and microaggression hardly does it justice. Uh, in fact, we were into macroaggressions. Um, but I've always had the same editor. I have a very unusual publishing history. I mean, I think this is the kind of thing that went on in the 19th century and the early 20th century, but it's very rare today. Morgan Entrican at Grove Atlantic runs Grove Atlantic um, and owns a big chunk of it. Uh, Morgan and I started out together when we were kids. He was a junior editor at Dell. He signed me up for my first book. He moved up over to Simon & Schuster, signed me up for his, my second book. Then he got an imprint at, uh, at, at what was then the Atlantic Monthly uh, 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 Press and signed me up for my next book. Eventually, Morgan took over Atlantic, mer- merged it with Grove. We've done every book together. So we sat down with all the books that we've done together and we went through, and he picked out his favorites, and I picked out my. And we'd all worked on these things together, so the favorites were pretty close. And we, um, uh, and so we got this big pile of favorites together, and we gave them to the managing editor at at, at Grove Atlantic, and she goes. Oh, great. You have a 7,500-page book. <laughs> so then Morgan and I spent the next couple of months with little hatchets killing our darlings. <laughs> we love so you, hard. love you, love you, wonderful little beast. <laughs> die, die. <laughs> so, and uh, it still turned out to be a, 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 a doorstop, a boat anchor. Uh, I personally am waiting for the Reader's Digest large type edition to come out. <laughs> Uh, I also wanted to talk about just quickly because um, because of the recent uh, current events uh, in San Bernardino, um, you, you've talked before about gun control. Reading reading your stuff, you seem to be somewhat for it, but you know maybe you're thinking it's not necessarily realistic. I'd love your thoughts on where the parties are are on how we deal with gun control. 
or if that's the issue. Yeah, right? Just, right? Like, how do you deal with, with what's happened in San Francisco? I, I feel sorry for politicians about this. <laughs> I really do. And politicians on the right and on the left both because there isn't really any... There's no truth to be told. You cannot come and tell the voting public the, the truth of the matter. You can say, we need stronger gun control, and that's a nice sentiment, and I understand where it comes from, and it would certainly seem to be true. You can say, we need better mental health treatment in this country, and that doubtless is true, too. But the truth of the matter is, this is a genie that cannot be stuffed back in the bottle. I don't know how many guns there are in America, and neither does anybody else. There certainly is a gun for every adult in America, every adult male. There's probably a, a, a gun for every adult. There are probably 319 million other things out there. I'll tell you a little story about gun control that I was just thinking about today because of the, of the horrible events yesterday. I was uh, in Georgia, uh, not the state, but the country, um, just as it broke away, about, this would be about 1990, just as it broke away from the crumbling old USSR. So I'm, I'm in Georgia, and the reason I'm in Georgia is I'm, they're having a civil war, as was kind of customary with the post-Soviet republics, and they're all shooting each other. And there are guns all over the place, and not just military guns. It wasn't just like they'd raided the army stash of guns. There are guns from World War I. There are guns from World War II. There are guns, like, from way back, you know. I mean, there are pistols. There are machine guns. They're the kind of machine guns that, that, that the, uh, like the British uh, and Americans did airdrops all over Europe to the resistance fighters during World War II. And so on and so forth. And they go, wait a minute. I said, I was under the impression that the USSR had the strictest, so the strictest gun controls on the face of the earth. And they said, oh, yeah. Yeah, it did. And I said, well, where did all these guns come from? Mm -hmm. They said, well, back in 1920, when the Civil War, Russian Civil War was going on, and it became clear that the Reds were going to win, we buried them. We took the guns. We, we smeared them with lamb fat, we wrapped them in hides, and we buried them in the garden, in the fields. And I said, that's 70 years ago. Everybody who buried those guns is dead. You know, the children of the people who buried those guns are dead. How do you, you know, so, oh no, we remembered where the guns were. And back they came, you know. And I was actually telling this story to a group of students at Berkeley last night. And I said, PhD alert, lamb fat obviously has preservative qualities, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> anti-corrosive capacity, little, little suspected. But it's darn hard to get rid of guns. They're a relatively simple piece of machinery. They're relatively easily repaired uh, and uh, all too easily operated. And how we would go about ridding our nation of this vast supply of these things is a question that's quite beyond how one stands on Second Amendment rights or how one stands on gun control. It's just a, and what politician can come out? You know, one of the things uh, is well, off the subject, but one of the things I've always felt about politicians, and feel you have to feel, I mean, it's hard to pity politicians. I mean, they do put themselves in this position after all, but they really are. If you think about it, politicians, cannot tell you the truth. They really can't tell you the truth. It's sort of like the way you can't tell the whole truth about your spouse or your children. Politicians can't tell us the whole truth about us. 
I mean, imagine the politician that stood up on the campaign stump and said, no, I can't fix public education. Because the problem is not funding, the problem's not overcrowding, the problem's not teachers' unions, the problem's not lack of computer equipment in the classroom, the problem is your damn kids. <laughs> that person is not getting elected. <laughs> uh, you know, in, in a related, potentially, we're not, we're, we're not really sure of all the facts of what happened in San Bernardino, but, but even prior to that with the, uh, with the shootings in Paris and uh, the resulting immigration debates, uh, both from, from in terms of Syrian and Iraqi refugees, plus prior to that, we've you know, had a, you know, an ongoing immigration debate, uh, especially among Republican candidates. Now, your, uh, your stance on immigration has been a little different than some of your fellow Republicans. I am a total, I, I'm a pro-immigration person. We, why are we not Japan? Why isn't our, our economy frozen the way Japan's is? Why isn't our economy frozen the way China's will be with the demographic trends? And it's immigration. I mean, we're, we're not having enough kids to, well, me and my wife are doing our best, but I mean, <laughs> most of us are not having enough kids to make the replacement rate. We're an aging society. I notice that in the mirror every morning. And... Um, <laughs> What keeps us vigorous as a nation is immigration. Plus, we're a nation of immigrants. I mean, if somebody wants to argue with me about immigration, say we shouldn't have any immigration in this country, they had better be a full-blooded Native American, not Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> I want somebody for real. You know, They got a few things to say about the problems with immigration, and, and, and they deserve to be listened to. But the rest of us, come on, where did we come from? You know, We all came from some other place. You know, And every time we came, whatever group we belonged to, whether we're, 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 whether we're Irish or whether we're Jewish or whether we're Italian or whether or whatever, every time we came over, everybody who was here already said, oh, it's the end of it. You know, that's the, oh, that, that place is going to hell now. You know? Oh, they let them in. You know? Well, you know, and, and it didn't happen. You know, it didn't happen and it's not going to happen now. But, you know, uh, uh, the, the, again, the, the problem is, uh, is a, fundamentally, I mean, besides the attitudes, which are horrible as far as I'm concerned, but, the, but, the, but there is a problem. Um, the Democratic candidates have cast themselves in a generally pro-immigration light. Our immigration and naturalization program is so screwed up. It is the worst bureaucracy. I don't know. I'm sure there are other people in this audience besides myself who've tried to help people get through people whose visa situation was in doubt in gray areas or they're having trouble renewing it. Anybody who has ever come up against the Immigration and Naturalization Service. So I'm in New Hampshire. This happened to me in New Hampshire. It happened to me with a young woman who was working was our nanny. And she'd come into the United States legally. And, uh, um, but then her visa status got messed up. I went to my congressman, lived down the road, who's a buddy of mine. I went to my senator, who at that time was young John Sununu, one of the smartest guys ever, a great guy. John Sununu has got a person in his office, or had, presumably the current senator does too, has a person in his office devoted to nothing but trying to sort out 
people's visa problems. This is New Hampshire. We've only got about eight immigrants, you know. <laughs> like six of them are French Canadians. You know what <laughs> is this about? And John told me, and my congressman was then, Charlie Bass, told me the same thing. They said, it is just like running 30 miles an hour into a wall of mud trying to deal with immigration and naturalization. That agency needs to be ripped apart and put back together again. Uh, well, in, in addition, sort of on the related subject of immigration, and you guys are going to get this book. I assume you're all going to get this book. Uh, and you look at it, and it's a big book. One place I highly recommend that you start is with Dispatches from the Gulf War. Uh, which is uh, a, a lengthy essay about uh, basically uh, Mr. O'Rourke's adventures in the Arabian Peninsula. You uh, basically describe the problem as this. Uh, when the Turks backed the wrong horse in World War I, the French and English divvied up the region in a manner both completely self-serving and unbelievably haphazard, like monkeys at a salad bar. Uh, <laughs> and we sort of continue to deal with the effects today. What is your take on what's happening in Syria and Iraq? And what would yeah, you a good friend of mine who knows more about this subject uh, than almost anybody, a guy named Charlie Glass, he was ABC's Beirut Middle East bureau chief for many years. And now he's a journalist and writes books. And he wrote a book some years back uh, about the Middle East, which he called Tribes with Flags. He's saying these are not nations. These are tribes with flags. And he laid out a lot of the problems, which in, and, he, and he wasn't even, he was pessimistic and he wasn't even pessimistic enough. And I was, he, he emailed me not, not all that long ago, about six months ago, he emailed me from, from, um, um, from Damascus sitting at a bar. He said, I'm sitting in a bar in Damascus thinking I could use some help with this bottle of Irish whiskey. And because uh, 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 I, I spent like, tw I spent 20 years as a foreign correspondent, mostly covering, I, I, I filed from like 40 countries, none of them the, the nice ones. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Charlie said, do people over there really understand there are no good guys? in this. There just are no good guys. And I said, no, they don't understand it, but they probably will come to, you know, too late. You know, they're, you know, and in Charlie's position, Charlie's a little bit more of an absolutist about this than I am, but Charlie's position is basically there's no group. While you can feel compassion for individuals and while there are honorable and decent individuals, of course, and engaged in this stuff, there is no group whose motives are pure and who you can support without, you know, caveat or cavail. And I fear, you know, I would say, but Charlie has spent a lot more time with the Kurds than I have. I, I, I'm very sympathetic to the Kurdish forces. He said, yeah, yeah, that's true. Some of them are great. And he said, and some of them are brutal terrorists, you know, that have been blowing people up in Turkey for time out of mind, you know. So I said, even there, you know, you're not on safe ground. Uh, well, just we're going to take a quick moment here for our podcast. This is the Commonwealth Club of California program, and we're talking to PJ O'Rourke about politics and his new book, Thrown Under the Omnibus. I'm Melissa Kane, your moderator. You can hear Commonwealth Club programs on the radio, catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and see program videos on our YouTube channel. Uh, I want to switch real quick to your process in terms of, you know, sort of how you write. As you all heard in his initial remarks, Mr. O'Rourke is, of course, uh, a master of insults to some degree. <laughs> I was reading reading through your book, Bucketheads, Peacemongers, Bumwads, Egghead Flapgums. Do you keep a little notebook where you, where you write these? And if so, will you put that on eBay? 
Yeah, no, no, I, won't. I do keep notes about that. I keep, do keep notes about vocabulary. Uh, there's, a, I have a wonderful collection of slang dictionaries, many of them dating back to the 1920s and 30s, and I go through those things regularly for, you know, insults that need to be like animated spittoon is yes, when I got out of there and I thought, God, special. that is like so old school, you know, that, <laughs> that needs to be revived, you know. Um, so that's, that's fun. But I think what my, my process as a writer has to do with like, I mean, I, I, I'm a reporter, I'm a journalist and most of the things I've covered have been pretty serious. And um, uh, I'm, I'm not a stand-up comedian. I'm, I like to tell jokes, I like to make people laugh, but I'm not a stand-up comedian. And then I'm, because, because, everything I say, there is a serious point in there. I'm, I, at no point do I stand back from something I say and say, just kidding, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not true. I'm not just kidding. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Uh, but <clears throat> I think really what that has to do with, has much more to do with background than it has anything to do with me. Uh, I come from a great big Irish family. I've got about 20 uh, first cousins. And um, uh, those of you who are Irish who know about this, there are two kinds of Irish families. There's the hitting kind. And there's the teasing kind. Mm -hmm. If you're lucky, you come from the teasing kind. I come from the teasing kind of Irish family. That is the way that they communicated everything. They communicated love. They communicated anger. They communicated approval, disapproval, irritation. Any emotion you can imagine, they would, um, they conveyed by teasing uh, uh, and by joking. And uh, I mean, it would have to, it would be something truly terrible to snap them out of this. It would have to be something like the funeral of a child or something, you know? Because even the regular O'Rourke funerals, and when you have enough family as big as mine, they're on a, pretty much on a weekly basis, you know? It's, <laughs> it'd still be, I mean, I remember when my grandfather died, died at 83, which was, was back in 1960. He was considered ripe old age, especially considering the mileage on granddad. And um, he, he, he died, um, um, he, he died right before President Kennedy was elected, and the funeral was right after President Kennedy was elected. And my grandfather was one of those Irish, and they were not rare, who hated the Kennedys, just detested the Kennedys. Why? Lace curtain Irish. Fruit on the table when nobody's sick in the house. <laughs> nothing, nothing to do with the Kennedys. Yeah. So like the first thing I'm, I'm, I'm little, I'm, you know, I'm 13 or something, you know, I'm, uh, and I'm crying. I loved my granddad and I'm standing by coughing, crying. And his sister, my great aunt Helen comes up and says, it's a good thing your granddad died when he did. What do you mean 
you know, because I would have killed him to see Jack Kennedy in the White House anyway. So that you know, was the atmosphere I came out where, of. Where do you go for inspiration? Like, if you're looking for something to write about, is it you just go to, like, motherjones.com and just get, you know, get inspired? I don't even have to go that far. You know, <laughs> you just hit any random key on the computer, check any random channel on the... Uh, um, the news has been... All my lifetime, the news has been a target-rich environment. You know? <laughs> That's fair. I don't really think that. I don't think we've been a. You know, certainly since I turned uh, 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 21 back in you know when 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 mastodons roamed the earth, I don't think I don't think we've been without a silly moment. You know, so. That's true. That's yeah. true. Um, you talk a lot about the fact that you are Republican and then communist and then Republican again. And, uh, <laughs> you know, as a writer, as a, as a humorist writer, um, first of all, are you friends with Dennis Miller? I feel like y'all should get together yes, I and am. like chat. I am friends and, like, with Dennis Miller. Laugh about back when yeah. you were like yeah. liberal. Um, yeah. But uh, this, there's also a question. I'm like also, also the only guy who loved his NFL commentary. Because <laughs> you know, oh, that play reminds me of a, a another play by a Greek playwright Aristophanes. You know? <laughs> All the rest of football fans are going WTF, <laughs> and I'm going, you go, Dennis. <laughs> I saw a little bit of Lysistrata in that myself. You know? One of our members of the audience wants to know: Are there other satirists and political writers that you admire, uh, such as Mencken, for example, who you quoted earlier? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to talk about the live ones, um, you know, Carl Hyacin, I mean, he's known mostly as, a, you know, writing these comic uh, uh, Florida novels. Carl's strongly political, as a matter of fact. Carl was, for many years, the uh, chief political economist, uh, economist, chief political columnist at the Miami Herald and covered all the lunatic local uh, uh, Florida politics uh, down there. He's great. Christopher Buckley is fantastic. You know, he's not, he's not the, uh, uh, politically focused the way his father Bill was, but, but there's strong political content. And, I mean, he's written a lot of comedies about, a lot of comic novels about Washington, and they're, they're absolutely fabulous. Um, Dave Barry, I love. You know, I mean, Dave Barry's never overtly political, but he's got a great eye for the stupid, <laughs> and that covers a lot of politics. <laughs> so yeah, there are, there are a lot of people out there that uh, I'm sure I'm not naming all of them off the top of my head, but. You know. And you've described yourself now as a conservative libertarian. Yeah, I lean more in the. I mean, I, I am. Is there a liberal cons- libertarian? Is there? Oh yes, there are, left, <laughs> there are left libertarians and right libertarians. Definitely, libertarians share a fundamental idea that 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 that, that the, the, the unit that we know about, you know, the unit that we as humans know about is the individual. The one thing that we cannot deny is that human beings, that the humanity is made up of individuals, and that everything that that that. Every organization, not just government, but all human organizations need to always take the individual into first account. Is what what this organization doing good for the individual? Is it respectful of the individual? Does it give benefits and liberty and responsibility? That's the one that nobody likes. Uh, But does it, you know, does it endow the individual with, with, with with, with, with greater respect, with greater liberty, with greater responsibility. And that really is not, that, that's an attitude, that's not an ideology. You know? And so, it can, so there are people pretty much across the spectrum 
And the problem, of course, with libertarians is they cannot form a political party because basically if you get two libertarians in a room, you get three opinions on a subject. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it's, it's a little hopeless. The what? Republican part of me is partly just the way I grew up. Um, um, I'm ethnically Republican. Um, <laughs> um, not so much on the Irish side, but my mother was, her family was from Downstate, Illinois. So my grandmother was a big force in my life, my mother's mother, <clears throat> was born on a farm near Springfield, Illinois, in an area where basically the only Democrat they'd ever heard of was John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> and she she was like really serious Republican. I mean, of the sort of thing like she was mad at Roosevelt. I don't mean FDR Roosevelt. She was still mad at Teddy <laughs> because he split the Republican Party and allowed a Southerner Woodrow Wilson to be elected president. So she was still mad about that. You know, so I I grew up with with, with grandmas. You know, very, very firm about this and. Uh, I go off to college and turn into the usual college left-winger. I come home from college with my hair down to wherever and a big red fist on the back of my jean jacket and my grandmother looks at me and she said, Pat, I'm worried about you. Are you becoming a Democrat? <laughs> Grandma, LBJ is a Democrat and he's killing all these innocent Viet Cong and causing all these riots in inner cities and exploiting everybody capitalistically. Of course I'm not a Democrat, I'm a communist. And she looked at me and she said, just as long as you're not a Democrat. <laughs> really mattered. Her. But, but you've um, you certainly traveled to uh, a number of places with different systems. You, you write yeah. about your travel to the USSR, to uh, to Berlin, uh, and, and other places like Hong Kong, which are, of course, you know, sort of capitalists over right. on the other side. Um, how did that inform your ideology? Or was your ideology pretty set before you got there? Like, which is... How, I how think my ide ideology was was fairly well set in, in, in terms of sort of liber libertarian conservatism. What, what was not well set and what was informed by my travels was not so much my political ideology as my sense of economics. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, for, for instance, Sweden, uh, an extensive visit to Sweden in the 90s made me think twice about socialism. Um, Swedes have a very socialistic system, and it works very well for Swedes. Uh, it wasn't that I disapproved of their system or disapproved of them or anything. But actually, Milton Friedman made this remark many years before. Some Swedish economist was in the United States and you know, very left-wing, and he's going, you know, in Sweden we have no poverty. And Milton Friedman said, that's interesting because among Swedes in America we have no poverty either. <laughs> is it cultural or what? You know, thing is, what I realized about Sweden, yeah, the system works, but it's eight million people, and they're all alike, <laughs> all completely alike. They all want the same things, you know. So sure, it works. They all want a free PhD, you know. But I mean, if you start now, Sweden itself found out it was beginning to find out in the '90s, and has since found out as the portion of immigrant people in Sweden has grown, they've discovered that there are all sorts of people who don't want the same things as the Swedes do. And it's caused a lot of tension over there. For instance, I went out to the, they have a way of putting their poor people way out on the outside of the city. You gotta take like an hour train ride out to these suburbs. I mean, they're nicer versions of those nasty suburbs around Paris. 
And so I go out and visit with people out there. And what they wanted to do is start small businesses. Well, starting small business is not something that it was easy to do in Sweden in the 1990s. They wanted to, you know, to, to trade and, 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 to, and to engage in, in merchant activity. And the Swedes are going, you want to sell things? <laughs> But why? <laughs> you can get a PhD for free. <laughs> Uh, we have a guest question. A, a, a guest wants to know your thoughts on Chris Christie, and also what is your dream presidential race matchup? <laughs> and, may, and, and this could be as an uh, American citizen or as a political satirist. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, Chris Christie, uh, you know, I, I sort of fell in love with Chris Christie as a candidate when, um, uh, when he responded, he was doing like a town hall meeting and there was an inquiring citizen who asked a question about one of, uh, of Christie's policies and Christie responded, sit down and shut up. <laughs> Boy, did that take me back home. <laughs> Everybody's going, oh my God, Chris Christie, that's the end of his campaign. You know, like, yeah, that's not going to play, you know, west of New Jersey. And I, not play west of New Jersey. That's everybody's family life. You know I mean? How did every discussion in, you know, all of our families begin and end when we were kids? Just sit down and shut up. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, he's got leadership potential. Um, You know, I think Chris Christie actually is, in certain ways, a good candidate, and he's he's got that prosecutorial side that like scares me a little bit. But you know, I I think it would also scare some people. Maybe not, might not be so bad to scare. My dream lineup. Now you don't want to go there because, and I'll tell you a story about why. Uh, I won't tell you what my dream lineup is, but so one day I was off duty. I, I was hanging around someplace. Nobody knew I was a reporter. I was in this little store in a little town, New Hampshire, <coughs> doing some Christmas shopping or something. And all of a sudden, a TV crew, local television crew, comes rushing back through the door into this, like, basket shop, handmade baskets. And I'm going, what could possibly be on the evening news about handmade baskets? And also, <laughs> they weren't facing the right way. They're facing the door, you know. And I said, what's up with you guys? And they said, oh, my God, there's a great big liquid petroleum gas tank across the street, and it sprung a leak. And I said, well, I guess this wouldn't be the moment to step outside and have a smoke. <laughs> <laughs> and the TV cameraman looks at me, and he said, oh, please do. He said, We're reporters. We worship different gods than you do. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my dream. <laughs> no, I don't know. Well, how do politicians react to you? I assume you go to D.C. fairly often or to, to once in a while, or even at your home in New Hampshire. I can imagine some candidates stumping, you know, how they have to go door to door and pretend to care what everybody in New Hampshire They thinks. do, yeah. Um, yeah. Like they come to your door, they, you know, they ring the bell and there's yeah. you and they go, oh, boy. No, uh, it doesn't do you, really do work that way. They are, you know, they, they, if you were to look up and what's that, the, the, not the physician's desk reference, but the psychiatrist's desk reference, mm -hmm. whatever is up. The, the, the DSM. Yeah, manual, right, yeah. exactly. If you look up narcissistic personality disorder, it's politicians. And if you look up and you read the, you know, the section on narcissistic personality disorder, there are like 11 things. And if like you hit... Six of these, you can be diagnosed as having mm -hmm. narcissistic. 
Well, it's 11 out of 11 for every mm. politician. <laughs> it's complete narcissistic. And as long as you mention them, they don't care. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only way you can offend them is by not mentioning them. It doesn't matter what you say, because they're not listening. All they're hearing is their names, like dogs, you know? You, know, like when you, you give instructions to your dog, you go, oh, Fluffy, can I stay out of the garbage? You know, get down from that chair, you know? All it hears is Fluffy. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you. We want to welcome our celebrated political satirist, PJ O'Rourke. We also want to thank our audience here and on the radio and on television and the internet. I'm Melissa Kane, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. Tune into the Michelle Meow Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.